Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune. And this week's episode is Antoine de Bourbon, King of Navarre, but not France. Welcome back, and thank you for understanding while I took a break. I needed some time to catch up on things after my husband recovered from the flu. Please get your flu shots. It's really important. The children and I didn't get it at all, so we're doing really well with that. And then, of course, I had a cold, so I'm, I'm sorry. It's a bunch of medical news. We are all thankfully recovered now, and so let's get on with this episode. Oh, and patrons, I'm sorry about the delay with Marguerite of Angoulême. Her episode will be up by the time you're listening to this. And just a heads up for anyone who prefers listening on YouTube. I've started uploading episodes on there. If I've done things correctly, they should be set as a playlist. And if I haven't, please let me know and I'll sort that out. For the moment, Episodes on YouTube don't have ads. Um, I think that's due to not being monetized yet. So if you do want temporary ad-free episodes, you can go listen there. That will be changed once I figure all of that out. But for the moment, at least the first eight or so episodes are ad-free. This upload has also motivated me to re-record the first mini-series since my sound quality was questionable. Thank you all for sticking with me through that. I'll start doing that over my Christmas holiday, along with preparing episodes for next season. And I do have a small request. If you are a YouTube user, would you please visit the show's page and subscribe? It would mean so much and it will help the channel grow, which will get more people listening, which means I'll possibly be able to do this as a full-time job instead of going back to work when my children start school. Oh, and before I forget to tell you, I've recently done two guest spots on Battle Royale as part of their Regency Madness series, covering the regents of Charles VI of France. For my first episode, I covered Louis II of Bourbon, and Ben covered John of Berry. For my second visit, I covered Charles of Orléans, and Ben covered John Duke of Bedford. And I hope you will all give those and the other Battle Royale episodes a listen. I really had a lot of fun with them, and I'll include links in the show notes. Okay, and there's one more thing. <laughs> After this episode, the one coming out next week will be about the French Wars of Religion, because it sets up the next two past well. After that episode, I'll be covering Antoine's brother, Charles Archbishop of Rouen, Cardinal Bourbon, sometimes known as Charles X, though not the actual Charles X. 
And then an episode about Isabella Clara Eugenia. Patrons in the Heir Apparent and Usurp tiers will get an episode about Catherine de' Medici. So I hope you're all looking forward to that. I've changed things around a bit. And don't forget, I will be doing an episode or two or three about Charles of Valois because I totally forgot him while planning the series. Yet again, please don't poison me, Charles. As for sources on Antoine, well, there isn't a proper biography of him in English. So as with other minor subjects, I have been looking at everyone else's biographies and various histories of the time and a few random references in research journals. So I'll include the journal links within my show notes if I can. And the other sources were Queens and Mistresses of Renaissance France by Kathleen Wellman, The Age of Catherine de' Medici by J.E. Neal. Frederick J. Baumgartner's Radical Reactionaries, The Political Thought of the French Catholic League, and two books called The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, one by Barbara D. Diefendorf and the other by Alrette Joanna. Okay, now on to Antoine. Sorry about that super long introduction. As those who listen to the Battle Royale podcast know, the name Bourbon is very difficult for me, so I will be calling Antoine by his first name throughout the whole thing and hopefully not screwing up all the Bourbons and calling them Bourbon. But just think of the drink. All right. Antoine de Bourbon, eventually King of Navarre, Jury Ux Oris, was, well, to put it honestly, rather unimportant when he was born on the 22nd of April, 1518 at least in terms of French royalty. In addition to his own father, Charles IV de Bourbon, who was only the Duke of Vendôme at the time, he was also behind Charles III de Bourbon, who was the actual Duke and only 25 and married. You guys may remember him. Oh, and then in front of them was Charles of Alençon, who at the time was married to Marguerite of Angoulême, who will become Marguerite of Navarre and Antoine's uncle via his mother. And then finally, Francis, son of Francis I, who was two months older than him. So that's three healthy men who could have their own sons, plus the king, Francis, and he would have two further sons. There is no way that in 1518, anyone would have thought Antoine would have come one musket shot and 20 years away from being king, or imagine that his oldest surviving son would actually rule. Of course, we can never see the future, and no one in the past could either. Antoine was, as I mentioned, the son of Charles de Bourbon, Duke of Vendôme, and Francois of Alençon. This meant that at the time of his birth, his aunt by marriage was Marguerite of Angoulême. Antoine was the second son, but his older brother Louis died before his second birthday. His parents had a total of 13 children, including Antoine's four brothers who survived to adulthood. I'm actually even more impressed to report that Antoine's parents only lost two children before the age of 20. Oh, and his mother actually had two older children from her first marriage. Yes, she gave birth 15 times and lived about 18 years after her final birth. She was actually 42 when she had her youngest child. Sorry, totally distracted by Antoine's mother. She must have been so tired. Antoine and his father were descended from a junior branch of Robert Count of Clermont, the youngest son of Louis IX, Saint Louis, 
I have included a family tree screen recording that shows how much work it takes to get here. A lot of people failed to have sons for this to happen. Remember that whole Salic law thing, only sons and the lines of sons can become the king of France. A quick bit about Antoine's father, since his life sets his son up to have an excellent future. Charles had been elevated to the Dukedom of Vendôme, the first to hold the title by Louis XII. I can't find the precise reason, but I assume it was because he helped Louis in his Italian campaigns. He had previously been the Count of Vendôme, which had been a title held by the junior lines of the Bourbons. Not long before Antoine's birth, his father had been appointed to Francis's council. In 1525, he was one of the few high-ranking men to avoid capture, and unlike his brother-in-law, Charles of Alençon, he wasn't accused of cowardice. There is more information about this in the Marguerite of Navarre special episode. Due to Francis being captured at the Battle of Pavia and Alençon's disgrace, Charles was appointed to lead the council. He, of course, approved of Louis of Savoy's management of the country. Don't forget, if you're looking up the Battle of Pavia, that there are two Charles de Bourbons at the battle. One on the French side, this one, and one on the imperial side, the son-in-law of Anne of France. The one on the imperial side was a traitor and would eventually be posthumously stripped of his lands and title. Now, when the traitors Charles de Bourbon switched sides, the Bourbon title should have gone to Antoine's father, but it didn't. Due to the traitor's treason, it couldn't be inherited by the junior line, and we know the traitor was posthumously attained, or the French equivalent. Despite not holding the title uh, Duke of Bourbon, the family's name was Bourbon, though remember, they are all Capet. Not long after the Battle of Pavia, Charles of Alençon died. When combined with the treasonous Charles, this moved the junior Bourbon line to the front of the queue. While in theory, the treasonous Charles was next in line until his death in 1527, I feel like there was no chance the leaders of France would have welcomed him back. So let's just go with 1525 as the year Charles, Antoine's father, became the next in line after the king's three sons. While searching online, I find a lot of statements that Antoine's branch of the Bourbon dynasty was disgraced due to the traitorous Charles treachery. I'm really loving this. <laughs> but based on Antoine's father's position, I think it's more mild than implied. Plus, this junior line of the Bourbon family was basically not related to the treacherous line, other than the fact that everyone is related. But I've checked. These really are the two least related related lines. While this moment may not have made things super difficult for Antoine, someone much closer to him will make his life very difficult later. Back to Antoine. His father's closeness to the crown, as in being close to Francis and supporting Louise during Francis's captivity, meant that when Antoine became the Duke of Vendôme, when Charles died in 1537 at the age of 47, things went smoothly. Antoine was only 19, and this also made him the premier prince du sang, other than the king's sons. His mother, Françoise, hadn't received the Alençon family inheritance due to Marguerite of Angoulême, also known as Marguerite of Navarre, taking it after her first husband's death in 1525. And just a reminder, who was Marguerite's first husband and why did she get away with this? 
Her first husband was Charles of Alençon, the disgraced former premier Ponce du Son. And as mentioned earlier, Charles of Alençon was the brother-in-law of Francis I, which means that Marguerite was the sister of the king. The king had basically dispossessed the Alençon family for his sister's benefit. But as chance would have it, this means that in the long run, the family properties and titles came back through Antoine because everyone is related. Marguerite's only surviving child, Jean, had been married to William, Duke of Cleves, in June 1541. This marriage was never consummated, and the bride protested it both verbally and physically. She refused to walk to the altar and had to be carried. She also refused in written form. She made it very clear she was not keen on this marriage. This marriage was annulled four years later in 1545. Antoine then married Jean in 1548, and apparently Jean was rather enamored with Antoine. They had known each other as children, and at the time of their marriage, Antoine was 30 and Jean was 20. And you can imagine she, you know, thought he was this dashing, slightly older, okay, significantly older man. And yeah, very sweet. Jean's parents hadn't actually supported this wedding because they wanted her to marry Philip, the future Philip II of Spain, and Antoine just wasn't good enough. When Marguerite of Navarre died in December 1549, her Alençon holdings would have gone to Jean, and therefore to Antoine and their heirs. Now, patrons in the heir apparent and usurped tiers already know a bit about Jean, and a bit more about her mother Marguerite from the latter's recent special episode. Please come see us on Patreon if you're interested in hearing special episodes. Marguerite had been known as a Catholic reformer, and I phrase this carefully because by all accounts, Marguerite was Catholic, thought the Pope was the head of the church, and probably most importantly, accepted transubstantiation. The idea that the bread and wine of communion are literally changed into the body and blood of Christ and not metaphorically changed. Despite this, Marguerite also believed that scripture should be read and readable by all, meaning translated into the vernacular, that corrupt monastic houses should be reformed, and priests and theologians should be held to a higher standard than they were currently held to. Jean's father, Henri of Navarre, was a bit more traditional and seemed to want to avoid rocking the religious boat. Antoine, on the other hand, had been raised by traditional Catholic parents. His maternal grandmother even joined a monastic order towards the end of her life. This means that Antoine went into his marriage as an Orthodox Catholic. Antoine and Jean had their first son, Henri, in 1551. No, not the Henri that makes Antoine a past. That's Henri's older brother. This first son died in 1553, right before his younger brother, Henri, was born. This second Henri will become Henri III of Navarre in 1572 and Henri IV of France in 1589. They would have three further children, Louise, Madeleine, and Catherine, though only Catherine, born in 1559, would survive to adulthood. Antoine would have one illegitimate child, Charles, who was the Archbishop of Rouen from 1594 to 1604. It appears that Antoine's illegitimate son was close to his legitimate siblings. I don't know what Jean thought of this. She may not have been as thoughtful as her great-great-grandmother, Valentina Visconti, but she was deeply in love with her husband and seemed to forgive this fault. Others she will not forgive. 
1555, Antoine became king. Well, sort of. Unlike the rest of the world, Navarre seemed to have figured out that naming things for monarch women were queen if they were the queen regnant and men were king, not prince consort if they were married to the queen. This may be because the first Navarrese prince consort was also a king in his own right, Philip IV of France, Jean's seven times great-grandfather. I do hope I got that number right. Once Navarre's second queen regent, Joan II of Navarre, you may remember her, and her husband became rulers, her husband was called king. In their case, he did do a lot to manage the country, and they were probably more co-rulers than most couples we've seen. By the time this gene became the Queen of Navarre, it was just normal to call the consort king. So while Antoine was king during Uxoris Oris by right of his wife, he was just called the King of Navarre. The couple were crowned in a joint Catholic crowning. Unlike earlier king consorts of Navarre, Antoine wasn't that active. Jean was the active member when it came to her country. Antoine, on the other hand, needed to be active in French court, which means he spent a great deal of his time there, mainly in Paris. I need to talk about Jean a bit more before getting back to Antoine. Her mother, Marguerite, had welcomed reform priests into her household, including her chaplain. There is a story that while France was dealing with the fallout from the affair of the placards in late 1534, that Henri II of Navarre slapped Marguerite across the face when he caught her praying with some of her reformed chaplains. Let me mention quickly, slapping your wife is not okay in any century and would have been just as shocking then as it should be now. Due to this, Marguerite's biographers, uh, Patricia and Ruben Chocolain, think Jean may have waited until her father's death to convert to Calvinism. And that's just what she did in the first year of her reign. She publicly converted to Calvinism. I'll be using the words Calvinist and Huguenot interchangeably throughout this episode and future ones. Just now I'm talking about French Protestants who followed the teachings of John Calvin. The gasps and pearl clutching would have been fun to watch when the rest of France found out what Jean had done. Today, most of us don't think religion should have anything to do with politics. Okay, we wish religion didn't have anything to do with politics. In this period, though, there was no way for politics to not involve religion. The King of France wasn't just the King of France. He was the protector of the Catholic Church in France. His coronation included mainly religious aspects. I'm sure plenty of you saw the coronation of Charles III, King of my country, and just a few others. It was very religious. And that's in a time when religion isn't in our everyday lives. Well, for most of us. In the late Middle Ages, though, religion was everywhere. The various bishops carried out assorted royal vestments, and most importantly, the king was anointed with holy oil. This anointing raised the king to a higher, more holy level. Remember, all the way back to our first past, Robert Curtos, who wouldn't attack Henry I because Henry was the anointed king. Curtos was a man who respected the religious rules of the day. The full title of the French king in English was from 1422, some version of, by the grace of God, most Christian king of France, followed by his subsidiary titles like Duke of Brittany. If a king allowed faiths other than the Orthodox Catholic faith to flourish under his rule, then it could be seen that his rule didn't have the full support of God. 
In addition, having everyone follow the same religion brought the support of the church and in many ways helped with cultural cohesion and stability. And don't forget, in this time, churchmen were the people who could read, so they were often carrying out official government duties. You can't just ignore the church. Antoine's oldest and only surviving son, Henri, was baptized Catholic, but raised primarily by Jean, which explains his eventual Calvinist faith. When Henri was still a child, Antoine and Jean took him to French court. This is an odd. Navarre was a client kingdom of France. In 1557, Antoine suggested that Henri, his son, be betrothed to Henri II and Catherine de' Medici's daughter, Margaret. This marriage would eventually happen, and it will be intense, and I'll cover it in the Wars of Religion episode. Just something I, I don't want to forget to mention. Now, the last episode on the public stream was Charles of Angoulême, the father of Francis I, who died in 1496, 22 years before his future grandson-in-law Antoine was born. At this point, around 1555, leadership in France had changed a bit. Francis I, Charles of Angoulême's son, and Antoine's uncle-in-law had ruled from 1515 until 1547, at which point his son, Henri II, had become king. Henri was actually a second son, but his older brother won't be getting an episode yet. Let me know if you're interested. Henri's wife was Catherine de' Medici, and they had 10 children, though only seven survived childhood. Henri was a traditionalist, and he did not support reforms within the church, and was most assuredly not in favor of the growing Calvinist movement to enjoy any royal protection or even acknowledgement. He allowed the burning of heretics and issued the Edict of Chateaubriand in June of 1551, which called for the punishment and smoking out of heretics. Henri didn't seem to appreciate his aunt, Marguerite of Angoulême's reforms within her holdings or anywhere else, and truly looked to bring the church in France back to the 1400s. The edict even demanded that books being shipped to France be searched by a theologian from the University of Paris to look out for heretical works. You know, Bibles that people could actually read being included on that list. Edicts like this are a nice thing to feel like something's being done, but they rarely actually do anything. Huguenot continued to convert and spread their message of reform. And I'll, again, be covering more of this in the Wars of Religion episode. Henri's rule lasted until the 10th of July, 1559, less than two weeks after he had received a wound through the eye while jousting. Ugh. He was only 40 and succeeded by his 15-year-old son, Francis II. Francis's mother, the aforementioned Catherine de' Medici, was unable to act as his regent due to his in-laws, the Guise family, basically coup d'etatting the government. Francis was old enough to rule on his own legally, but it wasn't to prove to be his strength. Oh, for patrons, Anne Montmorency, who had played a large role in Henri II's reign, was asked to um, go have a rest at the start of Francis II's reign. What does this change in government have to do with Antoine? There are two things. The first is, unsurprisingly, religion. The second is precedence. Remember, Antoine's wife, Jean, was publicly a Huguenot. Antoine himself had shown Huguenot sympathies since at least 1557, but I can't find a date of public conversion. 
1558, he attended a religious celebration that indicates that he was likely a practicing Calvinist. I mentioned in Marguerite of Angoulême's episode that Catherine de' Medici, unlike her late husband, had been a reformer, again, not a Protestant, but open to reforms of the church. She had the audacity at one point to write the Pope requesting some reforms. I should let you all know that Marguerite of Angoulême was also important in Catherine de' Medici's life, and Catherine had lived in her household. Patrons will know that Marguerite was one of the leading French reformers of her generation. But unlike the potentially Protestant Antoine and the reform-minded Catherine, the Guise were hardline Catholics with no room for reform. And after this message, you'll hear more. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Charles, the Cardinal of Lorraine, who was also the Archbishop of Reims, whom I'll call Cardinal de Lorraine, and his brother, Francis, Duke de Guise, were both cousins to Antoine through their mother, Antoinette of Bourbon, and the uncles of Mary, Queen of Scots, Francis II's wife. They were also not royal, as in not Ponce du Saint. This is where precedence comes in. In theory, Antoine should have been leading the council. He was the premier Ponce du Saint. Instead, the Guise were able to, uh, well, buy him off. He was given a wealthy governorship and sent to escort Catherine de' Medici's oldest daughter, Elizabeth, to Spain. Fun note, Elizabeth's oldest daughter is Isabella Clara Eugenia. Yes, until I go back to Charles of Valois, each subject is basically a seven degrees game from each other, including the special episodes. The Guise rule saw stricter anti-Calvinist laws brought into effect. Landlords could be punished for harboring Huguenots, attempts at controlling the ownership of guns, and the banning of wearing masks, along with plenty of other rules, were brought in. In addition, they were big on responsible finances. (laughs) I'm just kidding. They wanted to appear to be fiscally responsible. In fairness to them, France was in a massive level of debt thanks to, um, all of Francis's wars? Their way to do this was cutting the army and its budget, 
administration budgets were also cut except on Guy's land, and taxes were increased. And this led to, well, a conspiracy to install new regions, the Amboy Conspiracy. While Antoine was out of power and literally out of court, he was still important. Remember, Premier Ponce du Song and a king in his own right. Plus, he was a nominal Calvinist in a Catholic country, but that didn't mean he couldn't be a rallying point. However, Antoine turned down this offer. I think he was more motivated to sort out a few things in Navarre, which I'll get to in a moment. There was one other thing I should bring up here. His youngest brother, Louis I, Prince of Condé. Unlike Antoine, Prince Condé had deeply held religious beliefs, and he was a Huguenot. Condé had been bought off by the Guise, just like his brother, at the start of Francis II's reign. Unlike his brother, though, he wasn't going to just sit around and take the Guise money. Prince Condé was, as Antoine's brother, a Ponce du Song. But he had two surviving older brothers, Antoine and Charles, and so he was rather minor in the pecking order. But Condé was the most senior prince willing to join this conspiracy. Condé had been hoping that Antoine would actually make sure their family held power during Francis II's minority, and he had even gotten Antoine to court to try to claim the regency before this conspiracy got going, and Antoine lost his nerve, and as I mentioned earlier, just went along with the Guise family. This left Condé with only one option in his mind. One of the leading conspirators claimed to have John Calvin's support. Don't worry, Calvin will get plenty of time when I talk about the religious wars. This was a proper coup attempt. The conspirators were bringing soldiers who hadn't been paid or had been dismissed due to Guise policy. The goal of the conspiracy was to replace the Guise at Amboise while the king was on progress through the area. The Guise brothers would be killed if they resisted. Condé was, after things had been sorted out, to appear, surprise, and be presented as a new regent. This conspiracy wasn't kept quiet, though. Various groups of military members were arrested, various pamphlets the groups were going to release were found, and these were both anti-Guise and pro-Calvinist. The conspiracy seems, at least to me, to have been motivated both by politics and religion. And this conspiracy gave Catherine de' Medici the chance to actually take a more active role controlling her son's government. The Guise were still around, but Catherine was no longer on the out. And during this time, she was rather moderate in her religious policy. To note, she was actually listening to Francis II's wishes with these decisions. What does any of this conspiracy have to do with Antoine? Well, despite him not being a part of it, and in general staying out of power, he would still be dragged into it. His brother Condé was able to avoid a charge for this conspiracy, but he decided that he wasn't done trying to gain power in France. Condé made plans to take Lyon, and then march to Paris, both to remove the Guise and to support Protestantism in general. And this is where Antoine comes in again. He was ordered by Catherine to bring Condé to court for arrest, and he did so. In his defense for selling out his own brother, the Guise had a much larger army, and Condé was destabilizing the country. Sadly, with Condé's arrest, Catherine became less conciliatory towards Huguenots. His rebellion also further removed Antoine from power 
and led to the Guise being more powerful. Condé was sentenced to death, and I'll get to this in a moment. Catherine was able to basically get Antoine to do her bidding in many ways after this. He had adopted his late father-in-law's wish to reclaim the totality of Navarre. In 1512, Ferdinand of Aragon had defeated the Navarrese army and took possession of, well, most of Navarre. So while Henri II and in turn Jean ruled Navarre, they ruled a much reduced kingdom from the one we heard about in Joan II of Navarre's episode. Henri II had spent years negotiating with Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who was also the King of Spain, to try to gain back his territory, and Antoine continued this with Charles V's son, Philip II, and Catherine de' Medici was able to use this to her advantage. She would distract him from leading his faction by bringing up Navarre. In December of 1560, France was dealt a blow. Francis II, only 16 years old, died. He and his wife, Mary, Queen of Scots, had no children, and so he was succeeded by his younger brother, Charles, now Charles IX, who was only 10. We don't know what killed Francis II, possibly an infection of some type. Sadly, due to the political climate at the time, his death was blamed by some Catholics on Calvinists. Shocking, I know. I am going to point out that poisoning is everyone's favorite option for deaths that had no obvious causes, and someone this young dying couldn't necessarily be an obvious cause. Francis's death was lucky for Antoine's brother. Condé was released by Catherine, and she was now the undisputed regent. You'll remember the major claim to regency the Guise held was through Francis II's marriage to Mary of Scotland, their niece and their influence over him through her. Francis had been considered by some to be of legal age. While the Guise were no longer acting as regents, that doesn't mean they were gone. The Duc de Guise was still a respected military leader, and Cardinal de Guise was still a leading churchman. Catherine was able to convince Antoine to renounce his rights to the regency. Remember, he is still the premier ponce du sang. He was appointed Lieutenant General of France, which honestly isn't a bad title. Patrons will know this is what Marguerite of Navarre's husbands often received. Patrons should also know that Anne Montmorency was recalled. Catherine wasn't trying to include Antoine in government out of the goodness of her heart. She was hoping that having a Protestant faction would act as a counterbalance to the Catholic factions of the Guise and protect her power. Sadly, Antoine just wasn't the man to do this. It does appear that she was trying to remove religion from politics, at least at this point. And she was a woman ahead of her time in this. Religion and politics are so deeply intertwined that splitting them was next to impossible. Antoine took part in the colloquy of Poissy. A colloquy is a gathering to discuss theological issues. This one was called to try to sort out the issues between the Catholic and Huguenot leaders in France. It began in September of 1561, and Antoine had supported Catherine in calling this gathering. A news that will surprise no one, hopefully. This meeting sorted out nothing. It appears that it stayed civil, but neither side could agree on anything. As many of you may know already, the differences between the Catholics and the Huguenots were not something that could easily be sorted out, especially when it was involved with politics. 
Obviously, this will come up in next week's episode, which will cover the religious issues and the wars of religion. But the wars start now. In January of 1562, Charles IX, meaning his mother Catherine, issued the Edict of Saint-Germain, or the Edict of January. This edict was more detailed and precise in an update to an earlier edict, the Edict of July, also known as the Edict of Saint-Germain, and yes, those are both the same names. Antoine did actually play a part in this, as in he used his position on the Privy Council to recommend this edict. This edict gave Huguenots the right to practice, but didn't recognize that the religion had approval from the king. Worship could occur on noble estates, so all of Antoine's wife Jean's holdings would be allowed to worship in the Calvinist practices. Worship could be in a private home if it were for the members of that household. Worship could not occur in former churches or within cities except for noble estates. This means that worship was allowed outside of cities and in open areas. And no one was to interfere with worship other than the king's officers and magistrates were expected to help if worshippers were harassed. The ultimate hope was that there would be a reconciliation between the two churches. And yes, people were being a bit too hopeful. Obviously, these rules wouldn't make either side happy. Catholics didn't think Protestant worship was valid and saw it as heresy. And Protestants thought the Catholic Church was corrupt, superstitious, and rotting from the inside. Of course, there was resistance on both sides. While Antoine had encouraged the crown to update the Edict of July, he voted against the new edict in council. His younger brother, Condé, totally supported it. Parlement outside of Paris supported the edict quickly, but Paris, as you might have guessed, was slow to register the edict. Oh, there will be a This Too Shall Pass explaining French Parlement coming on Wednesday. The edict was finally registered in the Paris Parlement on March 6th, and even with that, it was still not popular. In fact, despite this attempt to protect both sides of the religious divide, things went more wrong before the edict was registered. On the 1st of March, 1562, the Duc de Guise was traveling to Paris through Wasse sur Blay, or just Wasse. As I've mentioned multiple times, men like Guise don't travel alone. He had his forces with him. By the way, he was traveling to Paris to help Antoine put a stop to the Edict of Saint-Germain. Wasi was a royal town, and one that the Guise family had a deep connection to. Despite that, the town had an extensive Huguenot presence, and he had tried half-heartedly to remove the heresy from the city previously. On the 1st of March, there was a large Calvinist service with about 500 worshippers taking place in a barn near the Catholic Church and the Guise Castle District. Guise was apparently enraged by the service and called a meeting at the local church with the local Catholic priest and the city's provost. These men told Guise that he should break up the heretical worship. Guise sent one of his leading men, named Gaston, to enter the barn where the Huguenots were worshipping. Gaston's entry was barred, so he forced the door and started killing worshippers. With his attack, the rest of Guise's men followed. Now, note, I haven't mentioned an order from Guise. It appears that he didn't actively order an assault, but regardless of his culpability for the attack, he apparently didn't step in to stop it. Fifty of the worshippers, including one child, were killed in the massacre. Interestingly, 
This event, called the Massacre of Wasi, may be the first use of the word massacre in the sense of killing a great number of people in a short period of time. This massacre is likely the match of the powder keg of religious strife in France. As expected, this was a shocking event in France. One of the leading military leaders in France had allowed an attack on unarmed civilians to happen on his watch in his family's holdings. Guise was ordered to Paris immediately by the Dowager Queen Regent. He was welcomed as a hero by the conservatives in Paris, as would be expected. Catherine, realizing things were going very wrong, ordered both Guise and Condé to leave Paris. Condé complied. Guise refused. Condé then marched on Orléans. This is where Antoine had the chance to prove himself. He could have stood up for his Huguenot beliefs, supported his brother, who had originally gone to Paris to assist Catherine and the royal family, and possibly find a middle ground in France for religion. <laughs> no, I know it sounds great, but that's not even a little of what happened. Instead, Antoine chose Catherine's side, and in doing so, reconverted to Catholicism. This would lead to his estrangement from his wife, Jean, who had been at court with him. I can only imagine how devastating this would have been for her. It would be like Philip suddenly liking Joe Rogan. Please, darling, don't do that. Jean, as imagined, stood by her religious convictions, and she actually left Paris not long after Fourburn, the capital of Navarre. This was a moment that Antoine truly could have helped Catherine, who had tried to thread the needle of toleration actually succeed in his choice to change religion at this moment will be contrasted with someone very close to him at the end of the episode. He seems to have not held his Calvinist beliefs closely, and he set them aside in the moment of that group's most need. With his decision to follow Catherine's lead, Antoine made some interesting decisions. He ordered all Protestants out of Paris. It's probably a good thing his own wife had already left, and I'm going to assume his son was also with her. He was about 10 at the time. Henri's Calvinism will come up soon. Antoine was originally sent to Orléans in June to try to capture his own brother. Condé retreated, and royal forces then retook Bourges. Antoine's wife, Jean, while traveling to Bern, allowed her troops to sack Vendôme, you know, his city. He ordered her rest with plans to put her in a convent. She managed to avoid his men and reached Bern before they could take her, which put her on the Navarrese side of the border. Allowing her men to sack Vendôme wasn't exactly her finest moment, but her rush to Navarre is quite impressive. Antoine was then sent to Rouen to besiege Huguenot forces there. The city had a growing population of Huguenots, and on the 15th of April, 1562, after growing resentment and fear on the part of the Calvinists, the Protestants in the city overthrew the legitimate government of the city. They swore allegiance to Charles IX and allowed the Catholic members of their council to remain at first. Things started to go poorly when hardline reformers started rather public iconoclasm, the breaking of idols from Catholic churches and the melting down of gold ornamentation. There will be more detail of this in the next episode, I promise. At this point, the Catholic counselors stopped attending council. I should note that Rouen as a city was a commercial center, so its government was a bit different than other cities. It wasn't completely run by nobles. The burgers had a lot to do with it. The first royal commander, the Duke of Almeil, who was a younger brother of the Duke de Guise and obviously the Cardinal de Guise, arrived in Rouen on the 28th of May. He asked for the rebels to be turned over and the gates to be opened. He was refused. 
I know, he had to be expecting it. Amel's forces were small, and he apparently forgot to bring the heavy artillery. So when he started besieging the city, it went poorly. Yeah, throwing rocks, literally throwing rocks at walls doesn't work. Antoine arrived at the city on the 28th of September. And this is where we come to the literal end of Antoine's story. He died on the 17th of November, 1562, a bit more than a month after being shot by a musket while inspecting his fortifications. Jean, who, remember, loved him dearly despite all his flaws, requested safe passage to be with him at the end, but didn't receive permission in time. His mistress did make it there, though. There are rumors that his last rites were Calvinist, not Catholic, which leaves Antoine's religious convictions a bit of a mystery. All right, so would Antoine have been a better king than the king who ruled instead of him? Antoine was only 44 at the time of his death. His son, Henri III of Navarre, would become King Henri IV of France in 1589. Had Antoine been alive to rule for even a moment, he would have been 71 at this point. So like the first Charles of this series, really Antoine and Isabella Clara are the only people not named Charles in this series, at least in the main feed. Antoine would probably have been too old to rule by the time he had a chance. His son will receive something that only two other French monarchs receive, the sobriquet, the great. He shares this with Charlemagne and Louis XIV. So much like the first Charles in this series, Antoine's son was amazing. And unlike the first Charles, Antoine himself wasn't that impressive. I think the simple answer is no. Antoine would not have been a better king than his son, nor would he have been a better king than the other kings who ruled. Catherine de' Medici's sons, and her as regent. Catherine gets her own episode soon, so I'll go over my thoughts on her then. But Antoine seemed to have no direction. He would blow with the wind, both politically and religiously. The thing I want to focus on is his reconversion. I will point out that if he had taken Protestant last rites, that means he was a relapsed heretic. So if he had lived, that means he likely would not have lived for much longer since being a relapsed heretic is a capital crime. His reconversion, though, was seemingly as insincere as his original conversion to Calvinism. He doesn't seem to have had direction, almost like a directionless rich kid who never figured anything out. His son, Henri, will also convert to Catholicism, but he does it to end the French religious strife. Or at least that was his goal. Sorry, spoilers for the French wars of religion and our next two subjects. Henri's conversion contrasts greatly with his father's. Henri had direction, knew what he had to do, and actually lost support from his major foreign ally, England, for doing so. He was a hands-on monarch who did much to help his country recover from the religious wars. He was tolerant after his conversion and was overall a relatively good king. Antoine just doesn't strike me as the same type of man as his son. Maybe it's that we don't know enough about him, but I feel like the two earlier fathers show us a bit more. Charles of Orléans happens to have been a thoughtful, intelligent, and competent man who did well in the circumstances. Remember, his father died, was murdered while he was very young, and most of us can't even imagine that happening. Charles of Angoulême wasn't exciting militarily, but he was an educated man who left his children in the care of his intelligent wife. Antoine flittered about French court, hoping to regain all of Navarre while doing nothing to make it happen. Now, I love historical fiction, and I hope most of you do too. It's a great entry into actual history. 
Antoine makes appearances in two of my favorite historical fictional shows, Rain and The Serpent Queen. Let me emphasize that neither of these are historically accurate, but if historical fiction gets you into history, then I'm all for it. Both of these portrayals show a guy who's pretty fun. The reason I bring this up is Antoine's representation in both isn't the worst, at least when it comes to historical accuracy. In Rain, he was a bit of a fun prince, and we know that he cheated on his wife. He spent most of his time at court in France, away from Navarre. And I actually enjoy his portrayal in The Serpent Queen slightly more because it shows that he's an adult and not the young party boy, and he is shockingly incompetent in there. There is one scene that disturbs me to no end, despite having the best line, everyone's related, in it. No, I didn't steal the line from there. I had it months, months before I saw that episode. The scene is disturbing because he's making out with Antoinette de Bourbon, the mother of the Guise, who also happens to be his aunt. More disturbingly, the aunt in the scene doesn't seem to know with certainty whether they're related or not. When I originally watched it, I thought he was making out with Anne d'Este, Duke de Guise's wife, who Antoine is only very, very distantly related to. But upon rewatching, I realized my mistake. And yeah, that is shocking. Next week, we'll be learning all about religion in France, and it's going to be a bit of a ride. I will see you all then. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod.